Hey there, creepy crawlers. Welcome back to another episode of Creep Academy. I'm your host, Ghastly Ash, and I hope you all had an awesome New Year celebration. It kind of blows my mind a bit that we're already in 2020, if I'm being honest, and it may not seem as crazy to you younger ones out there listening, but for me growing up, I always had this expectation that 2020 would be this futuristic dystopian style kind of atmosphere, like Judge Dredd or Escape from L.A., And admittedly, I'm a bit bummed that it's not like that because it's weirdly something obviously that I was excitedly anticipating. But aside from the giant neon billboards that I see sometimes around here, we don't even really closely resemble that, which I'm sure everyone else but me is happy about. But anyway, this episode is not really about anything futuristic. It's more about the past. And while I was ringing in the new year, I kind of started to reminisce about old times and old friends. And I'm sure most of you do the same thing when New Year's begins. And for some reason, my memories kind of got stuck on a specific time period in general. That time period was when I still lived in Colorado and was working as a body piercer at a tattoo shop. And it was a really awesome time in my life. I was having a lot of fun and I was living in downtown Denver in an old brick home. And I want to call it a bungalow style, but I'm not entirely sure that's correct. You guys can tell me, I'll post some photos, but it was located on 14th and Josephine downtown, kind of like right near the high school, kind of right by tattered cover and all that stuff. So it was a great time, like I said, and I adored that house and I had great friends. It was friends with all the neighbors. It was just in love with the place because all of it had really beautiful built-in fixtures, had the original wallpapers and things like that. But I remember when I first moved in, we had everybody asking us if the house was haunted because it was really old and it was in an old neighborhood. And now we went through a lot of random shit at that house, but I'm sad that really was never anything otherworldly or paranormal. But literally only a few walking blocks up the street from me is one Denver landmark with kind of a dark past that I wanted to talk about today. This is by many accounts one of the most haunted places in the entire state and I'm pretty sure a lot of my Denver listeners will be more than familiar with this. It's a beautiful little place called Cheeseman Park. These days, Cheeseman Park is like this really beautiful, picturesque 80-acre park. And we went there as teens and young adults a lot. The people from literally all walks of life around Denver go there. And as a matter of fact, the park is somewhat known as kind of an unofficial LGBTQ gathering area because it hosts some of the city's biggest advocacy events. And it's the starting point of the annual Pride Parade and home to the AIDS Walk of Colorado. So... Everybody around the area really is familiar with this, but the past of this park is really shady. The park's history began in 1858 when General William Larimer jumped the claim of the St. Charles Town Company and established his own town, obviously now called Denver. In actuality, though, the property didn't belong to the town company. It belonged to the Arapaho Indians, so it was kind of just snagged up. And General Larimer designated around 320 acres of this land to be used as Mount Prospect Cemetery, which it was called at the time. It was his intention basically for the influential residents of Denver to be buried at the crest of the hill and the criminals and poor were to be buried around the edges. Middle class basically were to find their place in the rest of the space in between. And I'm not sure if many of you know this, but back then, in the late 1800s, cemeteries were more like parks. They weren't the gated off areas that they are today. They had big open layouts with people who would go on walks and have picnics and sit there just taking the views of the city, basically. 
So that was Larimer's intention for this particular cemetery, which was kind of cool to me because as macabre as it may sound to some, I used to do this all the time as a teen. Uh, My boyfriend and I at the time would grab lunch and pick a spot in a cemetery near where I lived called Mount Olivet. And we would sit there and have a picnic. And as a matter of fact, when my brother was a tiny little guy and we wanted to get away from the house for some quiet, I would tell him that we were going to go to the cemetery park and we would just go hang out there. Basically, we were just odd little kids. But anyway, the first man buried in the cemetery was named Abraham Kay, who had died after being stricken with a lung infection. He was buried on March 20th of 1859. The second man buried in the cemetery was a Hungarian immigrant named John Stovall. Having arrived in Denver to allegedly settle a dispute with his brother-in-law, he ended up shooting him on April 7th of 1859. Both men were gold prospectors and witnesses believed that Stoffel was really there because he wanted his brother-in-law's gold. A people's court was assembled and he was convicted of murder. On April 9th, 1859, he was hanged from a cottonwood tree at the intersection of 10th and Cherry Creek. Afterward, his body, along with his brother-in-law's body, were both dumped into the same grave at the edge of the cemetery. Because remember, the edge of the cemetery was for criminals and the poor at the time. As kind of the running theme for history, a growing number of criminals and murder victims and poor were buried most often in this cemetery and it became locally known as Old Boneyard or Boot Hill. And Mount Prospect gained another nickname a little later on when a popular professional gambler named Jack O'Neill was gunned down outside of a saloon in March of 1860. It's said that the whole event began when O'Neill, a handsome Irish man, quarreled with a less than credible man who became known as Rooker. The argument progressed and O'Neill suggested that the two settle the argument with Bowie knives in the back room. However, when Rooker refused, O'Neill kind of started flinging insults about his heritage back and forth and kind of questioning him and his family members. So a couple of days later, Rooker shot O'Neill down as he passed by the door of the Western Saloon. When the Rocky Mountain News printed the story, the cemetery became known as Jack O'Neill's Ranch. So years went by and Larimer eventually left Denver and the cemetery was claimed by a cabinet maker who was basically kind of negligent of the whole thing and left it in disrepair. The tombstones had fallen over, prairie dogs were burrowing through all of the graves, and cattle was left to graze around. So obviously the affluent families no longer wanted any part of the cemetery and buried their dead elsewhere. The cemetery was left to basically the criminals and to the poor. In, In 1872, the U.S. government determined that the property was upon federal land, and having been deeded to the government in 1860, the government then offered the land to the city of Denver who purchased it for $200, which I'm sure was a lot at the time, I don't know. A year later, the cemetery's name was changed to Denver City Cemetery. Over time, the separate areas of the cemetery became designated for various religions, organizational and ethnic groups, such as the Odd Fellows, Society of Masons, Roman Catholics, Jewish, the Grand Army of the Republic, and sadly far in the more criminal people area of the cemetery, they segregated for the Chinese. It was not a nice area of the cemetery. And while some of these sections were well kept up by family, descendants, and other organizations, most of it was pretty much neglected. In 1881, a hospital for those suffering with smallpox was established just south of the Jewish portion of the cemetery, and the hospital more often referred to that section as the pest house, quote-unquote. There were smallpox victims that were there quarantined along with others having contagious diseases and some that were just merely sick, elderly, or handicapped. Most of the patients were simply kind of just left in the pest house to die, 
And behind the building was the potter's field section of the graveyard where the vast majority of the dead were buried in mass graves. It wasn't a great place to be. Nearing the end of the 1800s, the cemetery was seldomly used by anyone and it was falling apart, which led the city to basically kind of see the area as an eyesore and allowed an opening for the real estate developers to try and bid for pieces of the land, which by around 1890 the government allowed. But before any residential or commercial buildings could be built there, the city had to figure out what to do with all the bodies because there at that time was more than 5,000. And at first, the government offered families a free plot in other graveyards to be buried, and only 700 people were moved at that time. To move the rest, the city hired an undertaker named E.P. McGovern. McGovern was hired to remove the remains, and he was supposed to provide a fresh box for each body and transfer it to Riverside Cemetery at the cost of $1.90 each. But because he was paid per box, he came up with this really sinister plot to make more money, and that meant he began dismembering bodies, approximately, they think, around a thousand. And rather than utilizing full-size coffins for adults as he was supposed to, he used child-sized caskets and placed different pieces of hacked bodies into each, sometimes using as many as three caskets just for one body so that he could get paid more. In his hurry, he kind of left body parts and bones literally strewn everywhere in a completely disorganized mess with open caskets the whole nine yards. The city found out and he pulled him off the job, but instead of finishing the job properly, they just pulled the headstones out, filled the holes where the bodies were dug up, and basically pretended everything was all good and built what is now known as Cheeseman Park. The sad part is there was still at least around 3,000 bodies still buried in the ground. So with that knowledge, that this whole family park, picturesque little place and the surrounding area is literally built on a graveyard, it's not really all surprising that people have kind of come forward to report strange occurrences. It's said that at the time, there was sad and confused looking figures walking around, knocking on doors and windows. And there was also many reports of disembodied moaning and anguished crying coming from open graves in the cemetery during the exhumation. Even today, there are frequent reports of visitors and nearby residents of paranormal activity in Cheeseman Park, both in daylight and at night. And one of those common sightings involves the spirits of kids who are often seen playing in various areas of the park really, really late at night. However, they'll disappear suddenly when people get too close. This is also said to happen with a female spirit who frequents the park, and witnesses have said that they see her singing to herself, just wandering, floating around the park, but vanishes suddenly when people get close. There's also been various random sightings of strange mists and shadowy figures. Sometimes even the outlines of the old headstones are said to be seen in the moonlight. The one particular spirit that was specific to a lot of the reports that I saw was a spirit named Slackjaw. And Slackjaw seems to interact with people. In one eyewitness account of the meeting with Slackjaw describes the encounter as the following, quote, I live and work only blocks from the infamous Cheeseman Park in Denver, Colorado, and I've heard stories of its haunted nature, but never thought much of it until lately. One night, my friend Ruben and I decided to take a walk through the park. We walked across the south lawn to the pavilion where there were several skateboarders making jumps on the sides of the old fountain and other people walking about. We talked about work and other mundane things as we strolled away from the old pavilion into the rose gardens, where there was a natural maze and huge rose bushes. Just then, I heard a rattling behind us and said, Ruben, can you hear that? As I looked around, he replied that he didn't hear anything. There it is again, I exclaimed as I heard the chain jingling. Still, he didn't hear it and we could see no one. 
Continuing our stroll, we moved toward the middle of the big field where it was more open and sat down in the cool grass to smoke a cigarette. Moments later, we were surprised when we saw a kid riding a bicycle with a chain dangling from his pocket, turning circles around a thin, pale man dressed in what appeared to be a shredded hospital gown covered with blood. The pair moved toward us. To say the least, we were petrified. As they grew closer, I could see that the pale man's jaw was broken. He then approached us and asked us for a smoke. I handed him a cigarette and he said, Did you see them? Dumbfounded, I simply asked, Who? The ones who did this to me. They stabbed me 15 times, the man said. He then lifted his sleeves to show us what looked like very deep stab wounds in his arms, back, and chest. Horrified, I said, Shouldn't you be in the hospital? Shaking his head, he answered, They let me go because I didn't have any money. He then warned us to watch out for them and stated several times, I'm going to get them. When I reassured him that if we saw them, we would let him know, the pair casually moved away and disappeared into the darkness without a trace. When we could no longer see him, Reuben and I quickly ran toward my apartment as fast as we could, never looking back. End quote. And that wasn't the only story of Slackjaw that I came across online, but it's pretty consistent that people say that he roams around the park every night in search of his killers. But one of the strangest phenomenon that I have found in the reports was that many visitors to the park experience an odd sensation if they lay down in the grass. They say that after laying down for a short time, they feel as though they're unable to stand up. And it's as though some people or some unknown force is holding them down and they don't even want to get up. I've never felt that sensation while there, and I'd visited there quite a few times. But if you guys have any stories about it, I'd love to hear it. Or if you want to visit and report back to me, the park is located on Franklin and 8th. So feel free to check it out and then just let me know what goes on out there. And I'll post a few pictures relating to this episode on Instagram at CreepAcademyCast. And I'll have even more photos to browse on Creep Academy's brand new website, CreepAcademyPodcast.com. So that's the tale for the day. I'll see you guys on the next episode. <laughs>